Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, what is a good number of students to have in the average Ontario classroom? We discuss. A new survey says Canadians are more worried about the West separating than Quebec. More challenges for Canada's medical assistance in dying laws. And an update on the volcanic eruption in New Zealand. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, according to the financial watchdog for Ontario, the government spending, government spending uh, could fall short of health and education demands. This is out of uh, the Canadian press. And Ontario fiscal watchdog, or financial watchdog says there's a significant risk that the government spending plan will fall $5 billion short of what is needed for health and education. Uh, the financial accountability officer, Pete Weltman, says uh, in his economic outlook, the budget report released today that the need for those services will far exceed what the government's fiscal plan is for 21 uh, 2021-22. Uh, he says the government could balance the budget by that year instead of its target 23-24 if it doesn't implement tax cuts that were promised during the election but have not been implemented yet. Uh, Weltman says the government is intru- has introduced many programs and policy changes intended to cut costs over the past 18 months, which he estimates will save about $6.6 billion, even after factoring in those. Uh, Weltman says the demand for public services will be at about $4.8 billion. Uh, to talk more about all of this, what does it mean to you and me? Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, how are you? Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. What uh, What does this mean to the average person? Uh, how are we to digest all of this? I'm going to agree and disagree simultaneously with the FAL, and I want to use just plain English, plain logic. Everyone's going to understand it. I'm not going to go into the weeds, I promise. But what are the... And, and I really do respect the FAO. I think they do excellent work. So let's be very clear. I'm not one of these doubting Thomases. Uh, they're the equivalent of the PBO in Ottawa, the Parliamentary Budget Office, and the equivalent of the CBO in Washington, the Congressional Budget Office. And they act as a check and balance, nonpartisan, and they are nonpartisan, each one of them. And they hire these really highly trained, sophisticated, educated uh, wonks, people with PhDs in economics and statistics and mathematics, and I do not disparage them at all. Um, I, I really think they're sharp people. Uh, but whenever you're studying budgets, let's be very, put one thing right out there up front. Budgets are always about the future. They're not the past. Audited financial statements are about the past. The past has happened. It's not an opinion. It has occurred. It's a, an audited financial statement. I've got into debates over the past, in the past, with a Unifor on this uh, issue of budgets, some in the future. I remember I got into debates with Jim Stanford from uh, United Auto Workers, uh, now the Unifor, and he was saying, I approve that the budget forecast of company or part, you know, this party is, is false. I said, well, first off, when you're talking about the future, you cannot disprove the future. The future has not yet arrived. Anything about the future is a conjecture. I'm not putting down conjectures. We all want to know about the future. Sure. So to do that, we make assumptions. Now I'm going to get into my problem with the FAO. The FAO is using assumptions about both health care and education. I accept and agree with their assumptions about health care. And people may be saying, what is he talking about? Well, let me just throw it out to you, a really big picture. And this is from CAIHI, the Canadian Institute of Health Information, uh, which was set up by Paul Martin to collect statistics on our health care expenditure in Canada. That's that famous program that all Canadians say is free. It actually costs a quarter of a trillion dollars a year, 
I've never understood how Canadians think healthcare is free because the doctors don't work for free. And you don't buy the medical technology for free, but nonetheless, we think it's free. The critical metric, well, us older people, I'm over 65. I just turned 66, okay? Uh, we are about 12, 14% of the population. We consume about 44% of all the healthcare dollars in Canada. We're only 12 or 13% of the people. I'm not faulting us older people. When you get older, your body starts to wear out yeah. and it needs a lot more help. So my point is, yes, I agree with FAO that they're probably, the government of Ontario is probably underfunding um, health care in Ontario. It's, by the way, sidebar, very quick, Scott, that's why I'm so opposed to pharmacare. We already have pharmacare for low-income people. And so to throw, give free pharmacare to high-income people like me and, and senior public servants and medical doctors is just, just it's morally irresponsible when we aren't funding our mainstream health care system adequately. But here's where I disagree with the FAL on the education side. The average class size in Ontario, public and high school, according to the, the unions and the ministry, is about 25 people. My class size in the university is 48. And I have lots of friends whose average class size is 75 and 85 and 90. And Francois Boivin, an NDP member of parliament from Quebec, who's now on CBC Power and Politics, was talking about this last week, the class size in Ontario. And she says, boy, we in Quebec are envious of those class sizes. In other words, Quebec, which is a very, probably the most progressive province in Canada, has much higher class sizes. And the FAO didn't challenge those assumptions. They just said, oh, well, there's not enough money. Well, yes, if you accept the class size assumption of 25, instead of saying, wait a minute, we have one of the lowest class sizes in, in Canada and North America, and yet we're just assuming we've got to continue funding it at that level. And, and so that's why I simultaneously accept what they're saying on the healthcare side. We're not spending enough. It's going to be growing very rapidly because our seniors population is going from 12 to 13% to 25% in the next 20 years. In other words, in about 25, 20 to 25 years from now, all of North America, including Ontario, is going to look like Florida, one in four over <laughs> 65. And people over 65 consume vastly more amounts, higher amounts of health care. We are underfunding our health care. We have a looming health care crisis. Jeffrey Simpson, the former Globe and Mail journalist who wrote about this, has made this argument, as has, uh, have others. But the FAO didn't challenge the education assumptions in Ontario that 25 is the optimal class size when we know from hard data, Quebec has much higher class sizes, the universities and colleges inside Ontario have much higher class sizes, and I know firsthand, up close and personal, because I have these classes. So, you know, they're not, I don't agree with what they said on the education side, but I do agree with what they said on the healthcare side. Why is class size to deviate from this? Why is class size such an important issue right now as we're talking with the uh, about escalating teacher strikes? Well, I mean, I, I'll put my cards out there. Every one of us educators wants smaller classes. It's a lot more work to teach a bigger class. Yeah. There's no question about it. I mean, I, 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 I'd love to have a class size of 25, Scott. Believe me, I would just, I would die and go to heaven. And, and I went once on sabbatical to California about 15 years ago, and I was at this small community, Cal State, in Monterey, 
and they capped my capstone class at 30. I, I mean, I thought I'd gone to heaven. Hmm. I mean, this is paradise, a class of 30, only 30 students. But, and so it's, it's something that's very important to faculty unions, as you can guess. It's very important to uh, teachers' unions. And uh, the teachers' unions, of course, have much more leverage over the public because these are kids. Uh, they're educating the children, you know, 5-year-olds, 7-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds. And uh, so the parents want them in school because the parents have to work. And uh, it's not the same thing as us in the universities and colleges. Not everybody goes to university or college. Um, far from it. And secondly, in other words, it's optional. It's not mandatory by law. And so we don't have the same leverage and uh, whereas the schools do, and so they have used that over the years, over the last 20, 30 years, to, in Ontario to drive down the classroom size in the name of education quality, implying that your children are being badly educated if they're in a class size bigger than 25. Well, as I said to you, I think it's nonsense. My class size is 50, and they're getting a very good class uh, and education experience in mine and, and my colleagues. I know, I know yeah, but they, they, you know, I've had it. I've had plenty of educators on here, Ian, over the last week or two, and they'll tell you there's yep. you know all kinds of data that says the smaller the class size, the better for students, and blah 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 blah. What is the sweet spot here? Uh, the sweet spot. I'm being very very serious. Is the is the uh, the commitment and the uh, uh, the um, the quality of the educator? Um, I have taught very small classes. I've taught very large classes and in between. And when my classes get bigger, I have to step up my game and I have to put more effort into it. Of course I do. I'm grading more people. And, uh, and, and so I do really do believe that the variable, the critical variable is um, the commitment of the educator. Uh, for those who quote this all the time, I just, I, I, by the way, I'm aware of these studies that, that a lot of them do say that there's a correlation. Actually, I've seen other studies that there's no correlation between education and learning, which admittedly is very hard to define, believe it or not. I mean, how do you define what you learned in the course? You can say, well, the grade, which is what I've always argued. But now the Ontario government and other governments are getting into this learning outcomes and how do we know that you learned what the professors or the teachers said you learned? And so it, it, I will acknowledge it's very tricky. But my point being that I am, I am deeply skeptical because I've seen contrary results and contrary studies to the idea that the smaller the class size, uh, the better the education. I mean, university class sizes are much larger than in high schools and public schools. Granted, it's a different system, and yes, we have TAs, okay? But nonetheless, you know, the idea that it's that, it's that deterministic, you know, smaller the class size, better the education. It's, it's very simplistic. There's many more variables and there's, it's far more complex than that in terms of the delivery uh, of education than simply how many uh, students are in the classroom versus how many instructors in the classroom. It just seems that no matter the government of the day, Ian, it's been 40 years of conflict. I went through it as a student. I'm now going through it as a yes, parent. Yes. Yes. And, and again, I, I point out there's other provinces in this country, and we don't have to go to a really poor province, you know, and to be blunt, you know, Newfoundland and Labrador and New Brunswick are very poor. Quebec is probably, some would argue it, but I think many would agree that Quebec is one of the most progressive, liberal, small L, liberal provinces in Canada. And they have significantly larger class sizes in Quebec. And I have Why had, is it I an issue here than not? Why is it an issue in Ontario and not other provinces then? Uh, well, the unions have been very, they've had very strong leadership uh, for a very long time. And they've, as it was successive governments, they've been able to uh, convince the government and public opinion of their cause more so than perhaps another. Uh, I give the unions, the education unions, 
full credit that they've been very, very successful in making their case, whereas they haven't made so successful in other provinces or in states in the U.S., uh, nor have faculty unions at colleges and university level. They have not been as successful at making that argument. Uh, do you think that uh, we're at a tipping point? We've sort of gotten off track here, but it's a fascinating issue in your yeah, point of view. It is. Uh, is have, we, have, have we hit a tipping point here in Ontario? Well, I don't think we have, but I've made this argument actually in faculty meetings, at general, um, uh, uh, where we have these town halls in the university, that uh, we are coming to a tipping point. And, and the tipping point is not going to be driven by the, we're going to be at the receiving end of the tipping point in education, whether it's high school, public school, college, university. And the tipping point's coming from uh, education, uh, excuse me, from healthcare. And I'll, and I'll tell a story that's off, when I say it's off the record, I mean, obviously I'm on media telling you this, but I spoke several years ago when I was the MBA director to a very senior person in the Ministry of Education at the time, colleges, universities. And I will not name his name or anything like that. It doesn't really matter. It's irrelevant. And he said something to me that stuck with me. And he said, you know, you know, you, by and large, have lots of young people, young, fit, healthy people in your classes. And we are, uh, we, the minister, the government of Ontario have to fund you. And of course, we have to fund uh, hospitals and healthcare. And healthcare overwhelmingly is servicing older people who have some serious medical challenges. And he says, when push comes to shove, and we have to make a choice, because governments do have to make tough choices all the time, and we have to make a choice between what is perceived to be a sector that deals with young, healthy people with their whole future ahead of them versus older, sick people who are medically challenged, sometimes financially challenged. He said, this is a no-brainer. You are going to lose every time. And as the population increases, this is my thesis, and I don't think it's profound, others have said it, as we move from 12 or 13% of the population and we move towards 20 to 25%, in other words, the demands on healthcare are going to go through the roof. Governments are going to be faced with choices. We can't fund everything. Hmm. And they're going to make cuts. And they're going to say, we're putting more money over here and less money over there. And over there is going to be education. Why? Because we're the... Have we lost Ian? We have lost Can you Ian. hear me now? Yeah, go ahead. We're, yep, finish it off. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry about that. So we're, uh, education is the number two envelope of spending. Healthcare is number one. And when they have to make a choice and make tough choices, they're going to cut us and put more money into healthcare, understandably so. Ah, very different of opinion. Different opinion, Ian, and uh, a little off topic, but boy, fascinating discussion to get your perspective of it all. Ian Leesman with the Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. What are Canadians more concerned about? Quebec separation or the West separating, meaning Wexit. Uh, you know, when you look at what's happening over the uh, across the pond with Brexit, I don't know why anybody would want to go near any of this. Uh, that being said, for years it was always about Quebec separation. Now, 
with the past election and such and results. Uh, we have certainly now seen growing mo- a growing movement in uh, the West. And in post-election, Canadians kind of blew it off. A lot of people didn't really seem to care too much about it. Oh, yeah, whatever, whatever. And, you know, what has changed, I'm not sure. But obviously, uh, the feeling about the West is, it appears, starting to change as more and more are um, are aware that it's happening. And, and a Rhesus Nanos uh, survey said that uh, the majority of Canadians are concerned, very concerned about uh, Western alienation and such. To t- uh, talk more about all of this, Genevieve Tellier is with us, professor, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Genevieve, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. Now, is this that we're more concerned about Wexit over Quebec separation, or is it that we're not really concerned about Quebec separation? at this point? I would say probably the second one. We're not very concerned, but even more, I would say that Quebecers themselves are not very concerned about their own uh, stance on the issue. Because if you look at the past election, provincial election in Quebec, the Parti Québécois has performed very, very badly. Uh, And the option of uh, separation is not very popular, I would say, especially among the young generation. And for the older generation, well, you have a, a core within the population, some that still believe in it, but they are a minority. And on top of that, the current premier, uh, François Legault, is doing very well. So he has defined a new nationalism, a nationalism that is part of Canada and that pleases most of uh, Quebecers. And so uh, to answer your question, I think the main, folk, the main factor for me would be that Quebecers themselves are not that particularly interested by by separation, they don't talk about that, and so we don't talk talk also about that uh, on a national level. It's interesting because it seemed to sway opinion would sway in the past, um, and of course with what happened with the vote way back when and such. But it now seems that uh, everybody is in a comfortable place. Is that accurate? It seems that the, that they've found everyone has found a balance here. Yes, I think so. Uh, now, is it uh, momentarily in the sense that we see that now, but may change right. possibly we don't know uh, but it's more than just a a, a a temporary thing in Quebec in a sense that we have seen that for many years now and so uh, the Parti Québécois was elected briefly in 2014 uh, for a few months was a minority government but we don't see the Parti Québécois as an alternative and the option presented by the Parti Québécois itself uh, about separation um, is not even talk about now. Um, so yes, I, I would say that most Quebecers do feel that they are comfortable in Canada currently, but, and I would say but, uh, don't forget the Bloc Québécois. So, uh, that was right. That was the next question I was about to ask. <laughs> okay. um, that being said, elected the Bloc, but again, as long as everybody's happy and nobody's talking about it, it's a positive scenario. So mm-hmm. in other words, just because the Bloc was elected, that doesn't necessarily mean that separatism's on the rise. No, and I think the Bloc is a good example for what the West could do. And so we're talking about the West a lot, but uh, what do Western Canadians want? Do they really want separation? I don't think so. And if they want separation, what's the basis for that? Is it just economics? And if that's the case, I don't think that's enough. If you compare with Quebec, it's all the cultural aspect of it. Uh, now, maybe what could happen is a, to have a regional party emerging as the Bloc Québécois is doing for Quebec. And so the Bloc Québécois performs well when it says, I'm going to Ottawa to defend the, to defend the interests of Quebecers. Mm. If the Bloc Québécois changes message, which it 
has in the past and says, uh, my main priority is for uh, separation, then it performs very poorly. Mm. And so we may think that the same could happen in Western Canada in the sense that a truly independentist party would not succeed a lot. But a new party that would emerge saying, I would go to Ottawa to defend the interests of Alberta, Saskatchewan, etc., then it may have a better chance of succeeding and, and then look at what the Bloc Québécois is doing currently. So that's what the West can learn from Quebec and how they played this over the last couple of decades. That would be my suggestion. That's kind of the, the thing I, that I see. Now, if we look at the past, one also big lesson to learn is that when there is a regional interest emerging in Western Canada, normally it splits the Conservative Party. So it's finding a way of working with the Conservative Party, the current Conservative Party. Otherwise, uh, the right will be divided and then uh, we'll go back to the years of the Reform Party alliance and that uh, and those years. Uh, it seemed after the last federal election when the West made its statement and were obviously very angry, a lot in the East kind of blew it off. Well, you know, blah, blah, blah. and they didn't even draw the equivalent, uh, draw an equivalency between Quebec separation and um, and, and Western separation, which is interesting to see this poll. Um, do you, has the mood changed, or, or did do politicians just mis, did politicians just misread the public here? Because obviously now uh, the majority of Canadians are very concerned about this. So has something changed post-election here? Uh, I don't know if something has changed. I, I would agree that uh, political leaders tend to minimize that. Uh, we've seen that with opposition leaders or even Justin Trudeau. So I'm talking about uh, Jack Metzing, for instance, uh, Justin Trudeau, but also some premiers. Uh, Doug Ford would be an example. And so the morning after the election, he was saying, well, okay, now let's try to reach to Alberta and let's try to buy, to build a stronger federation. And it is uh, to the advantage of Ontario to have a strong federation. So they wouldn't buy in that uh, rhetoric of, of separatism. separatism. Um, I would say that in Quebec, maybe the message was a bit different. I think in Quebec, Quebecer did acknowledge the resentment in the West because maybe they are a bit more um, knowledgeable about that. Um, so it's not exactly the same going on in every part of the country, but I would say that within the federal system, uh, yes, we try to minimize that, but that wouldn't be the first time that some uh, political uh, leaders would be out of touch of what most of the population right. is thinking. So I think we have an example. So the same with uh, Brexit, the same with what we see in France and the U.S. Uh, probably is also what's occurring in Canada. There's certainly been uh, Western alienation in the past. Uh, the, the, they've had these squabbles in the past. Uh, there's certainly nothing new in that regard. However, is it different this time? Does it, it seems to have more momentum, especially when you look at how Canadians feel about this. More momentum and more structure. Uh, it's not just about talking about it. It's about acting on that. And so we are seeing an effort to bring a new party, to have an organization or a movement. I don't know exactly what it is but to get organized and get the message out there. 
And so, yes, it's a bit more different, I would say, now. Uh, also, partially because of Jason Kinney. Um, I'm not saying he's the one leading that movement, but he also has a strong stance towards the federal government. So he's keeping that issue alive. And so people are still talking about that. So that may also explain what we are seeing. Now, uh, I, what I will be interested to see, and that's what I will be looking for in the next months, years, is do we see a, remer in a re emergence of the Reform Party, so something similar as mm. the Reform Party in terms of ideas and, and organization, or will it be something new, maybe a bit more grassroots, maybe with people that we don't know currently, so not the traditional leaders, but new person emerging, having a different, idea, a different ideas, a different way of doing politics, and that could be interesting to see. How does the Prime Minister handle this? How does he position this moving forward? He tends uh, his hands towards Western Canada. He tries to see what agreement could be signed. You know, there was something funny during the weekend. There was an agreement signed between Jason Kinney and Trudeau about uh, the carbon tax. And so it's a modified version of the carbon tax. It would be imposed on big polluters, so company only, not uh, taxpayers or ordinary taxpayers. And so that's the kind of initiative that the federal government can do. Uh, listening, um, I think also opening the coffers of, of the government, so spending more on, 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 on initiative that Western Canada wants to have. Um, maybe setting up a national conversation, although that could be an issue. We know there, there will be a premier's conference with uh, Justin Trudeau uh, in the winter. Uh, now it could be helpful, but at the same time, we could see more grievance being addressed to the federal government, so that could be a bit tricky. Um, but this is an issue. This is a concern. The solution is not clear, but certainly dialogue is important. It's a point to start with, and acknowledging that Western Canada has some problem, and explaining those problems to the rest of Canada. And I think that the explaining portion is missing now, and so mm. it should work a bit more on that. Uh, what about the pipeline? There's uh, chatter over the weekend that this is now starting to move forward. How imperative is it for the Prime Minister to, to make it appear that there's progress on this? It is imperative in the West, but it's a big problem in the eastern Canada. How so does he balance this? Exactly. I don't know how he will. will. Uh, what the, the strategy until now has been, uh, we have committed on this to be built, and so we'll continue towards that. And so when we give our word for something you could trust, we will act on that. And this seems to be the strategy of Trudeau. But at the same time, it will be very unpopular in eastern Canada. And so what do you do? Do you propose alternative uh, initiative to please others? If so, what? I don't think that that planting a billion, two billion tree will will do will do it, and so uh, this uh, this uh, exercise of equilibrium uh, of calibration, I would say, uh, balancing different or opposing uh, interests is is very difficult. They were not able to do it in the past, so it's, uh, I'm not sure about the outcome.
Uh, let's go back to what you said earlier. Is this really about opposing interests or not just being really clear with both sides about what you're doing? I mean, it, it seems it's one extreme or the other that the the prime minister has painted himself as a, uh, a you know a defender of the environment, yet on the other hand, you know, is talking about pushing pipelines, and it, it almost as if you know he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Isn't this a discussion we should have with all provinces together and understand what each's needs and and, and wants are and, and how we move through this as a country as opposed to individual regions? Uh, yes, and it's interesting to see that we have this sense that uh, Trudeau is saying one thing in Western Canada and another thing in Eastern Canada. Yeah. But if you look closely at his platform and his discourse, he really tr- tries to say the economic and the environment could work together. The problem is he has not demonstrated that. He has not pushed that. And I think that's the thing to push. And he hasn't uh, sold that, has he, no, enough? No, like his reasoning for doing this. Yes. And so we, when you talk about green initiative, green economic initiative, we don't see any. We, we, we don't know what is feasible. We don't know what we should implement. And this is not just in Western Canada. It's in all provinces. And so you would have guessed, for, for instance, that public transit would be on the top of the list. But there's no real initiative and we see that money is still scarce on, on those projects. And so that's for the government to make the demonstration that this is feasible. And personally, I think that most Canadians wish that this is feasible and would like to see the outcome of such initiatives, so bringing the two together, the environment and, and the economy. Uh, but the government has to be serious. It has to demonstrate that this is feasible. He has to show the direct benefits that m- most Canadians will receive from that. But he has not, not done that so far. So that, for me, is the main issue. Will Christia Freeland be the unifier here? Um, it, it seems as if that is thrust on her now. Uh, what does he and she have to do in order to unify the country? Uh, find common grounds. And uh, that's what she has been doing with uh, Donald Trump when she was negotiating NAFTA. And so that's the same thing she has to do in Canada. Now, when she was negotiating NAFTA, she had to negotiate with two different players, so Mexico and the America, Americans. Now there are 10 provinces, uh, two, three territories, uh, thousands of municipalities. So that will be much harder for her to come up with some common grounds. Uh, I think that the strategy of Freeland has been in the past to maintain dialogue, and so she probably will continue that. Uh, but I expect that Canadians will want to see some tangible results eventually. So that would be the, 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 big, the biggest challenge that she is facing and that Trudeau also is facing. I uh, can't let you go, Genevieve, without last asking you your thoughts on uh, NATO last week in London and the conversation at the cocktail party in regard to Donald Trump. And, uh, well, I think it even, well, I know it may, even made Saturday Night Live this yeah. week. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, poor, poor. And, and everybody was spoofed. Um, your thoughts, how does this all play out? Uh, poor Trudeau, he doesn't know how to behave on the international scene. His, his um, misstep always occur uh, on the international level, and also that's a bad image for Canada. Uh, that being said, um, I don't think it will cause cause a lot of damages. Mm. Um, it's interesting to see how it was played in other country and differently than in Canada. 
um, people all agree that Donald Trump is the problem. Um, and about NATO, not a lot of things have changed, I, I think. We just hope, I think that's what Canadians are crossing their fingers for, is that we hope that Donald Trump will forget about that and mm. move on to other issues. Uh, but yes, uh, we still have the sentiment that Trudeau needs to learn when it comes to international issues. It's interesting how uh, you pointed out how uh, both countries uh, sort of had a different spin on it. And I understand even Biden's using this in his campaign ads, not the Saturday Night Live, but just the, hap- the fact that this all happened. So uh, many might be high-fiving uh, the prime minister in the sense that uh, and thinking, well, if Donald Trump throws stones in those sorts of circles, you know, it's going to come back to haunt him sooner or later. That being said, uh, as a world leader, that's just something you got to be very careful of. It's interesting how it stuck to him and not the other leaders. Yes, yes, I agree with you. What, uh, uh, as we move forward, will we see a different prime minister in this, in this term? Have we seen this already? Uh, is, he, is he more humbled this term? Um, and Possibly, if it if 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 he is not, I don't see what else could be done for him to become more humble. In the sense that we have a minority government, this is entirely different than his first mandate. So there's a strong message. Things have changed a lot, uh, and so it's for him to act. Uh, if he doesn't, then there's something I don't understand. Uh, but uh, that would be the opportunity, in my view, to, to for him to change his tune, to change the way he explained, especially explained. It's okay that different leaders have different personality. I don't have any issue with that. Um, but the explanation part was always a weakness of this government, and so if he doesn't correct that rapidly, uh, it's going to be even more difficult with this minority environment. Genevieve Tellier has been with us, Professor, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa. Genevieve, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we have talked on this show uh, at length several times about medically uh, assisted death and uh, how it has evolved and how we got to where we are now. Uh, And as we now have laws like this starting on the books, uh, as time goes by, we're realizing that uh, perhaps a lot more work needs to be done in addressing people who really need this, uh, this avenue and perhaps uh, take into consideration uh, other scenarios other than are stated in the law. Uh, this is a scenario in regard to a, uh, a woman who wants to see the law change so she can legally end her life. Uh, she's living with an incurable disorder. Uh, fibromyalgia, uh, sorry, um, uh, I'm going to pronounce this actually correctly, fibromyalgia, uh, and is wanting to uh, have a, a medically assisted death as a result of this, but because this is not a terminal illness, however, is incredibly, incredibly tough to live with, uh, she doesn't qualify. And there's been other scenarios, uh, whether it's uh, giving consent at the time uh, and people concerned that they are going to be incapacitated at that time. There certainly is lots of areas where these laws need to be uh, re-examined. Let's bring in Corey Ruff, Advocacy and Media Engagement Officer, Dying with Dignity, and is with us now. Corey, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. 
Uh, thank you. It seems every so often we have a case such as this that uh, makes it into uh, public view and, and people are debating how far this law should go and if it should go farther. Uh, this is certainly an ongoing work in progress, isn't it? Um, absolutely. That uh, Many uh, Canadians across the country uh, have, have chosen uh, more than uh, six or seven thousand have chosen to end their lives with medical assistance. Um, we're we're grateful that that option was available to to um, to those people who are facing intolerable suffering. But for for some people, that uh, the law continues to discriminate against them, and they face uh, very difficult choices as a result. So, how does one qualify? What do, what needs to be in place in order for this to happen? All right. Well. Um, one must uh, satisfy a number of criteria in in the law. Um, the specific case that you gave of, of Justine Noel, who's from uh, the Niagara region, she has fibromyalgia. She satisfies uh, according uh, she's been assessed for assisted dying, and she apparently satisfies almost all of the criteria for medically assisted dying, except for one: that one's natural death has to be reasonably foreseeable. And so despite the fact that she, um, my understanding is, is she's basically bedbound because of her condition, because of the pain um, as a result, um, that uh, she has, is suffering intolerably, um, that she has uh, a longstanding um, and well-considered wish to access assisted dying. Um, she can't access that choice because, as I said, her um, natural death is apparently not reasonably foreseeable. So um, although her disease incredibly painful and, and literally limits what she can do and it has bedridden her, uh, because it will, in the foreseeable sh- future, not claim her life, it's not terminal, she doesn't qualify. That's correct. Uh, one doesn't have to have a terminal illness to qualify for assisted dying, but because her natural death is not reasonably foreseeable, she's been told um, that MAID is currently not an option for her. Um, there's a court case in Quebec um, that was decided um, in September that ruled that that particular um, criterion is unconstitutional. Um, it, uh, the government did not challenge uh, that uh, decision. Um, and during the election, Prime Minister Trudeau said if re-elected that he would expand Canada's assisted dying law. So people like uh, Justine and her husband, Jason, are waiting for clarity about whether um, someone like her will be able to access assisted dying. And certainly our organization is calling on the government to, to clearly state um, when it plans to strike this unconstitutional rule from the law. Uh, and there's a, a couple of things here that need to be addressed. Uh, this situation in regard to uh, can't for, foresee her death in the near future. Uh, also a recent case that we were following as well where it was in regard to um, uh, consent. And, you you know, before this all happens, you have to be able to consent. And if you've fallen ill or succumbed to the medication that you need in order to survive or, or cope with your, sorry, cope with your terminal illness, if if you're incapable of, of acknowledging that, then you don't qualify either. I mean, there's a few situations here where some pretty important questions need to be addressed. Absolutely. There, there are several... Um, fixes that need to be made, and um, you um, 
very wisely mentioned the situation for many people who've already been assessed and approved for assisted dying. So people who've been already uh, assessed and approved by two clinicians have been uh, given the go-ahead to access assisted dying under the law. Um, there are people who lose out on um, that ability because they're not able to give that final consent at the very last minute. Um, others choose to end their lives days or potentially even weeks early yeah. um, because they fear losing out on that ability to to make that choice. So um, we at Dying with Dignity Canada, that people who've been assessed and approved for assisted dying should not have to face a choice like that. If they've um, if they have already been assessed and approved for assisted dying, um, they should be able to indicate that the assisted dying procedure could go ahead even after they've lost capacity. So that's a, of a huge concern for, for people and families across this country who are navigating difficult choices at end of life. Uh, any idea how many of this is affecting right now? Um, uh, again, we it's not as if we hear about this a lot other than when people decide to advocate and take their cases public to do so. Obviously, this is a very private thing. Um, would we be surprised how many people are having difficulty with this? Um, it depends on what the barrier is. For the assessed and approved situation, it, it affects everyone uh, who's been assessed and approved for assisted dying to varying degrees depending on their condition. And then for people like Justine, um, we don't have clear numbers because um, the government has not released um, their first year of standardized um, assisted dying reporting, um, and we're hoping to get that information soon. So it, it is not quite clear um, how many people it affects. What we do know is uh, some of the heartbreaking stories of people like Justine, um, the heartbreaking choices that they face um, when unfairly denied their right to an assisted death. There are people who've been um, in similar positions to someone like Justine who died by suicide, um, that they were denied for assisted dying um, because their death was not reasonably foreseeable and um, faced with um, a life of intolerable suffering. They felt that they had no choice but to end their lives by their own hands. And that can be very traumatic for families mm. and obviously very stressful for the individual. And, and our hearts go out to people like Justine and others who find themselves in the same position. When will we see movement on this? What, what happens to Justine while this is all up in the air? Um, it, it seems like it's been a very stressful time. Justine has written a, a blog post for Dying with Dignity Canada's website um, saying that if there isn't movement soon, that uh, an option like suicide may be the only choice for her. The government has said um, that they um, plan to make changes to the law, but people like Justine um, and, and Jason and their families cannot wait any longer. So we're calling on, on the government to, to make these changes as soon as they can and to be clear about what they plan to do. So um, people like Justine um, know what options are available to them and when. Corey Ruff has been with us, Advocacy and Media Engagement Officer, Dying with Dignity. And if you want more, the website, Corey, where can we find out more about Dying with Dignity? I'm dyingwithdignity.ca, and please sign up to our mailing list. Corey, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for your time. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Five people are dead and many others missing after a volcano erupted on White Island in New Zealand. It was initially believed there were approximately 100 people on or near the island at the time of the eruption on Monday. Police said new information suggests there were fewer than 50. Uh, Some of those people have been transported to shore. However, a number believed to be on the island are currently unaccounted for. Uh, no fly zone, obviously, over the island at this point. There is only so much they can do or can't do in regard to uh, getting onto the island. It is uh, just too dangerous at this point to uh, to even continue on with any sort of, uh, of recovery effort. Uh, to talk more about all of this and give us a bit of an update, Chris Elders is with us, geology expert and professor at Curtin University in Australia and is on the line now. Chris, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. That's okay. Our condolences go out and our thoughts and prayers to everybody who's uh, experiencing this tragedy down your way. Uh, what can you tell us about this island? Yes, well, White Island is a well-known uh, active volcano. It's part of a long line of volcanoes that are present on the North Island of New Zealand, uh, all the way from the famous Lake Taupo, which is a, an old uh, caldera that's filled with a lake, all the way up to White Island, and then the line of volcanoes extend out into the Pacific Ocean uh, up as far as the Solomon Islands. So uh, we understand this uh, this uh, volcanic island erupts more or less on a continuous basis, but is still a, a beacon for tourists. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. So there's a, a low level of um, activity most of the time. So one of the reasons, or some people believe the reason it's called White Island is because you can see, often see a plume of white smoke coming from the, uh, from the crater, from the, uh, from the mainland. So there's a sort of fairly regular uh, background level of activity. It does seem to have become slightly more active over the past uh, couple of weeks, and the, uh, the, the level of activity increased from what the New Zealand Geological Survey recorded as, as level one to, to level two indicating that there's a there's activity within the crater uh, itself but a very large explosive eruption such as we saw uh, yesterday occurs much much less uh, frequently so obviously there wasn't enough concern uh, at this point uh, even with the, the uh, more frequent eruptions there was no reason to believe that this was going to happen there was no reason to restrict tourism at this point well, yes, that's a very difficult uh, question to answer, and I guess a lot of people are considering whether you know more heed perhaps now should be placed uh, on those warnings. But certainly the level of activity that it was at, it was still safe for people to, to visit the island in the sense that the activity was occurring and was confined to the, to the, to the crater. Uh, being able to say that that was a uh, an indication that this much more violent eruption was about to occur is much more difficult. Anything more we can learn or can be uh, we can share in regard to what actually happened? We're assuming there were fifty people on the island and then it just let go and they basically ran for yes, it. Yes, that yeah, that's right. It, it seems it was um, extremely sudden that uh, some groups of tourists had uh, visited the the island in the morning and were leaving on boat and then. Uh, suddenly saw this uh this enormous uh cloud of smoke and steam and uh and and ash rising from the the volcano and then also rushing down the uh down the slopes uh as as well
Um, what is the status currently? Uh, are they able to do any sort of recovery at this point? What can you tell us? Uh, my understanding is that that not not at present, as you you said earlier, there was a, a no fly zone around the island, and the, uh, the the main risk I think is continued volcanic activity. It's very unclear how long the volcano will continue to um, to erupt, but so long as it does, it's obviously not safe for uh, rescue workers to, to, to go onto the island. Uh, where is the island? How, f- how far would these people have to travel in order to get there to visit it the way they have? Um, I think it's just a couple of hours by, by boat from right. some of the, the nearest ports. And certainly the, the island is just about visible, I think, from the, uh, from the mainland. Do we know anything more about injuries or anything about the conditions of the people? Well, the reports um, last night uh, in uh, local time were that the authorities believed that the, the, there was very little chance that the, the people still missing would be would be found alive. They said, reported that there was no signs of life uh, on on the island, but that that was obviously at, at nightfall in New Zealand time, and I guess it'll be uh, light there now and. Uh, uh, presumably new assessments will be being made. Uh, when was the last time there would have been a, an eruption of this significance? Any idea? Well, the, 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 there was an eruption in 2016, so relatively recently. There was quite a lot of activity round about the year 2000. But probably the last very significant eruption was uh, occurred in, I think, 1910 or 1914, uh, when there was a, a very similar eruption to the one that we saw yesterday that um, resulted in the, the deaths of 10 people who worked on the island mining mining sulfur. And mm. obviously, as a result of that, the mining activity came to, came to an end. Will this end the tourism industry there, do you think? I would imagine so. I think it's very difficult to see uh, people yeah. being prepared to take the risk of yeah. which they, they were warned uh, to, to go back to the uh, go back to the island just we've we've been given a very stark lesson of just how unpredictable hmm. these sorts of eruptions can can be and you know I think it possibly applies to many other places in the world where tourists visit visit volcanoes of a very similar nature so uh, Stromboli in in Italy is another example of a very similar style of volcano sort of background levels of activity that attract tourists and tourists visit um, visit that volcano frequently. And I guess people will be looking very hard at the uh, way in which that sort of tourism is managed, I would imagine. Chris Elders has been with us, geology expert and professor at Curtin University in Australia. Chris, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. A volcano erupted in New Zealand on a place called White Island, about two hours off uh, the mainland. And at this point, five dead, several missing. Uh, It's rumored at this point about 50 tourists were in the area when this all happened. We'll, of course, keep you abreast on what's happening on this story as it progresses. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.